you can see uh, in the bulletin is an outline if you'd like to follow along. Some people like to do that. It just helps them a little bit to, uh, to concentrate and retain and uh, something to take home and, and chew over, meditate on. Um, or if you don't want to do that, that's fine. Um, but I hope you will be listening uh, as we open God's word together. So the title, of course, is Dead or Alive with a question mark. And I think the question mark, well, I know the question mark is there because I put it there. But the reason for it is, is that we need to ask ourselves, uh, which am I? Which am I? I think sometimes we, uh, we tend to miss um, things that are going on. Uh, we get so concentrated on one area or the other that we, that we need to focus more, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. But sometimes we look at things from a wrong viewpoint as well. There was uh, uh, one night that a wife found her husband was standing over the baby's crib, just kind of staring down, silent. She, she watched him, and as he, as he stood looking at the baby, her eyes began to fill with tears, and she went over and slipped her arm around her husband and said, A penny for your thoughts, dear. And he replies, and he says, It's amazing. I just can't see how anybody can make a crib that way for only $46.50. He missed the big picture, didn't he? He missed what was going on. He was more concentrated on the crib and how it was made and how cheap you could buy something like that versus the creation that God did in that crib in making that baby. I think sometimes we are like that. We're dead when it comes to what's really important. Some people can overcome that, some people not so much. But what we're going to be talking about today is that we are dead. We were dead. We're dead, and there's no hope for us in and of ourselves to get out of that condition. But there is hope. There is an answer that we'll look at. But the first thing, though, that I want us to see in the first point in your outline is that we were dead, verses 1 to 3. And in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses, and sin. Yeah, you know, sometimes when you look at God's word or you read God's word, there's some things in there that are hard to understand. They even tell us that. Uh, uh, Peter tells us that about Paul's writings. And so there are some things that are hard to understand. It doesn't mean we can't know them. It just means that we need to dig a little bit deeper and search a little bit more, maybe think about things some more and, and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. But then there are some things in scripture that are so clear, so clear. You cannot miss it unless you're just blind to what is being written and this is one of them it says you were dead you were dead in your trespasses and so you were dead what does that mean well there's a couple of meanings that it has one is that you're lifeless you're without breath you're not existing in, in the flesh anymore you you're in a grave but then there's another re, uh, meaning and it can't mean that first one because paul is writing to people who not only can read but hear and understand what he's writing so it can't be He's writing to lifeless people. That would kind of not make sense, wouldn't it? So what is he doing? He's writing to people that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But as also the first fill-in in your outline, it says that we come into this world physically alive but spiritually dead. That's what he's talking about. You were dead. You were spiritually dead. It's that part of us, that old nature that comes to us at birth, that is separated from God. As a matter of fact, it has that meaning to it that we don't even care about God. 
We have no clue about God. Even whatever's preached or said or done in and of ourselves, we're dead to it. It just does not have any effect upon us. That is spiritually dead. Now, that's an awful picture, isn't it, to think that that's the way you were born. That's the way I was born. As a matter of fact, there are people that really fight against that and say, no, 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 that's not me. That's not me. I, I'm, I'm not that bad. But we're not able to please God. There's nothing in and of ourselves uh, that is good. In a couple of passages, one I, uh, well, I wrote them all down for you in the, at the, in, in the bulletin there, but in Psalm 14, 1 to 3, just listen to what uh, God has to say here. Familiar passage to you, but it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not one. That's pretty blank and open and honest, isn't it? Pretty clear as to what he has to say here. But he goes on, and he says, if you don't really catch a hold of that, verse 2, he explains a little bit more about being dead. And so he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So he's talking about our walk before Christ. He's talking about our walk that we were uh, dead we were spiritually dead according to the course of this world. That means that we just naturally, our human nature, in and of ourselves, without God, without the divine influence, we not only did not care about God, but we conformed our lives to the way of the world. The world will dictate to us. And now, again, there's a lot of people that don't like this uh, truth that comes out because they know I'm my own master. I'm in control of everything. And they don't realize that they're not in control. They're not the master of their lives. As a matter of fact, it says the prince of the power of the air is in control here, who is Satan. And God has given him a temporary authority over the world to be able to influence people in their thoughts and in their spiritual life. And he does that, and people don't even recognize it sometimes. Sometimes in people in church. In the way that we treat one another, do not realize that we're conforming to the way of the world. We need to listen to what God has to say to not allow that old nature not to be conformed because we were at one time. Again, there's hope, and you know what that is ahead of time, but we'll look at it in a few minutes. But our sinful nature, again, acquired at birth, has separated us from God, and we're controlled by sin. That's the realm that we live in. The second fill-in is that our old nature conforms to the way of this world. It conforms to a world, again, that's controlled by Satan. And verse 3, though, says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, even as the rest. This is how we live from their birth. Our desires... We fulfill our desires, which is our desires. It's not God's desires. It's our desires. We fulfill uh, that which comes from the natural man. And uh, it's that earthly part of us that's separated, that rejects divine influence. And we all did 
At one time, we, re we rejected it. I can tell you in my lifetime, I've heard the word of God. I heard the truth. I heard the way of salvation for years. And I kept rejecting it. I kept pushing it away. I kept saying, I, I'm in control here. I'm not as bad as the pastor says I am. I live a good life. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. But here he says, no, this is, this is you. It's that earthly part of us that rejects God and, and any influence that he has. Now, does this mean that we're all evil? Well, the next fill-in, the third one, says people, some people are obviously worse than others, but everyone sins and is separated from God. Now, I put that in there for us to know that we all sin, but sometimes what we like to do is we like to compare ourselves to other people. We like to think, well, you know, I, I know this woman or this man or these people or this group or whatever it is. I'm not that bad. Compared to them, I'm not that bad. And somehow that seems to lift us up and pick us up. Do you know that that's a trick of Satan to do that? That's a trick that he's given to us so that we don't come to realization when it, Scripture tells us to examine ourselves. Don't look at ourselves. Sometimes we try to compare ourselves to see where we might fall on the acceptable to God scale. And if we really stop comparing ourselves, we'll see that we all fail. Doesn't it tell us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't an acceptable scale in and of ourselves, in our old nature, rejecting God, rejecting divine influence. We cannot be good enough. We cannot work enough. We can't be kind enough. We can't come to church enough. We can't give 20% of our income to the church and say, that's got to do it because statistics tell me that less than 5% of the people's income over the, over the whole of people as that were um, questioned I mean, five, some people don't even give 5% of what they make. So if I give 20%, how much better am I? We try to, that's again, that's a, that's a trick. That's, a, that's a, something that comes from Satan that, that tells us that, that I've got to be better than what the pastor is saying. So does it mean that we're all evil? No, it doesn't mean that we're all evil because some are worse than others, but we are sinners. We are sinners. Our old nature carries out the demands of our flesh and of our mind. That's what the old nature does. That's, that's that thing that separates us. And so what we desire, what we think, that's all opposed uh, to God. You know, I think when you boil it down, when you really boil it down, what do you think it comes to? I think it comes to ego. I think it comes to self, selfishness. At least I'm speaking for my own life anyway. Before I knew Christ as Savior, and unfortunately it still raises its ugly head sometimes, is that I think about me. What's best for me? What is it that I can do that um, will help me to feel better? I mean, our world operates that way, which is conforms to our sinful nature, doesn't it? Satan has very sneakily snuck that in so that uh, the very things that sometimes we look at and we think are good are not good. So, guys, you, you know, if you buy the right named T-shirt, you're going to be manly. You're going to look like that model. You're going to have muscles that are just bulging out, and you're going to have to have a stick to beat the girls off from you. 
See, doesn't it appeal to them that us that way? Or, you know, or your teeth. I mean, if, if they're nice and white and, and when you smile, there's a sparkle, you know, there. There's just something about that. And your fresh breath. Now, well, I probably should have that. But there's just something about the right um, whiteness of your teeth. Or gals, you know, if you, write, if you have the right shampoo, your hair is going to be soft and flowing, and you're going to have to uh, just keep the men from wanting to run their fingers through your hair because it's so nice. And then you're going to look like that model on TV as well. world appeals to self, to our selfishness, to our ego. Also, we see that in the way that waiting lines produce certain emotions and thoughts in our lives, right? I don't know if anybody enjoys waiting lines. Maybe if you're really anticipating a ride at Disney World or something, but even then, you get people that are impatient, don't you? We don't like waiting lines, especially if you're in McDonald's and there's more than one car ahead of you. What are your thoughts? I could be spending my time a whole lot better than this. It's like I'm more important than waiting for my food. I'm more important than that person in front of me. And I'm really glad there's six cars behind me. And then there's people that butt in line. We've had that happen. We're in line and people will come and they'll, they'll butt in line. They want to be first. They want to be before you. Driving habits. Most of you, if you drive, you know what I'm talking about. We've gotten very impatient. We want to be first. We come up to a, an off-ramp. You're not going to take that off-ramp, but whoever is coming at 90 miles an hour by you is, and they don't want to wait behind you where there was open space. They want to get in front of you so they can immediately go over and get on that off-ramp. Me first. I'm important, not you. Ego, self, it's appealing to that. Well, how about let's talk about our little youngsters. Huh? Our little youngsters who cry out, me first, you need to meet my needs. And if we don't fit their schedule, if we don't immediately jump to their demands, they demonstrate a little tempter tantrum, don't they? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be upset here, and you're going to know that I'm upset because you're not meeting my needs. And sometimes you don't have to be a little child for that. We can do that even as adults. Well, we won't go there. Okay, so I don't want to spend any more time in these verses because I, I don't think it's really the emphasis that Paul had, but I think it's important. And I think it's important because he wrote it so that we would um, understand where we've come from. He would understand. So he's writing, writing to people that, that have trusted Christ as their Savior, and so he wants them to understand what they've been saved from. And I think what that does is that produces a lot of things in our life. He says that you, uh, because he writes to them, he says, you were, you formerly walked, you formerly lived, you were by nature children of wrath, all past tense, right? This is what you were, but now you are alive that we'll look at in a minute. I think it's important so that we understand what we're saved from and who did it. I think it's important to have and create an overwhelming gratefulness in our life. We lose that sometimes as believers especially if we've been saved for any length of time, is we just take our salvation for granted. We take coming to church for granted. We take going to our work for granted. We take whatever it is. We just seem to take for granted 
what's going on in our life and really rather than look at it and say, God, I owe you everything. I owe you everything. You saved me. You loved me. You gave your son for me. This is what I was, hopeless, helpless, heading for hell. Eternity in hell, this is where I was heading. And you broke in and gave me life. So I think he's talking about that, and that's the second point, is that we were dead, but now we are alive. In verses uh, 4 to 10, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been, ra- uh, been saved and raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I love those first two words in verse 4 when it says, but God. I love it when I read it in scripture. And just think about some of the things that when, when you read your, have your devotions or read the word of God. Like in Genesis 8, 1 where it says, but God remembered Noah. Genesis 21, 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed. 1 Samuel 23, 14, David was staying in the wilderness and Saul was seeking him every day, but it says, but God, but God did, uh, did not deliver him. Psalm 73, 28, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Acts chapter 13, verses 19 to 20, Paul was preaching the word of God and he said, When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, Jesus, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God, but God raised him from the dead. Now, somewhere along the way, there ought to be an amen in here, or a hallelujah. I mean, to really stop and think of what we have been saved from, to understand what God has done, to understand that he didn't have to do any of this stuff for us, right? I hope you'll know that. I hope you realize that. Now, some people have an ego that says, oh, no, he should have died for me. But that's just simple foolishness. He didn't have to do that, but he did. So we need to have amen and hallelujahs, and not just on a Sunday. I think every day. And every night when you lay your head on your pillow in your own bedroom, in your own bed, and you're in good health, hallelujah, amen, thank you, God. Another day. You've protected and provided for me. Paul says everyone is dead, spiritually, alienated from God, heading to eternal destruction, but verse 4, but God, but God being rich, but God being rich. That means abundantly overflowing with mercy and love. And that's the next fill-in. Uh, the first fill-in under point two is mercy and love are not just qualities that God expresses, but they are who he is. They are who he is. First John 4, 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Psalm 116, 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. And because God is these things, it's not just something that kind of comes about in his character, but it's because of who he is, it's his part of his makeup, then those acts of mercy and love are going to come out, right? And they're going to come out toward us. Undeserving as they are, undeserving as we are, they're going to be there. Romans 5, 6 to 10 says, For while we were still enemy, uh, helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... 
uh, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his blood and by his life. Uh, then I think Paul came to the main point here, at least the way I'm looking at it. I think he came to the right uh, to the main point in verses 5 to 9 when he says, By grace, by grace you've been saved, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Repeats this. That's important. When God repeats something, we need to pay attention. He did it for a reason. And I think that's important. And it also emphasizes what we were saved from. The fact that we were hopeless and helpless, nothing we could do on our own but God, because of his mercy and his grace, saved us from that. Thayer's Greek lexicon. I don't want to get too deep with this, but just listen to what he has to say, the definition. It says, the mercy, merciful kindness by which God, this is about grace, um, the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtue. What does that mean? The next fill in your outline. Our salvation from beginning into eternity is all of God. That's what it means. Everything. Not only our salvation, but carrying out salvation, that working it out in our life uh, that um, Pastor Mark mentioned. um, Everything about our life. And he's going to do that in us throughout and into and throughout eternity. We're going to not stop growing. Some people think, once I've reached eternity, my learning days are over. No, they're not. We're going to continue to learn. We're going to continue to praise. We're going to continue to do whatever God asks us to do. But I think with a more willing heart than sometimes we exhibit here. We do not earn salvation. We can't keep it. John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What a great pair of hands to be in. Amen? What a great pair. You can't be in better hands than God the Father and God the Son. And he said, nobody's going to snatch you from that. Nobody's strong enough to do that, not even yourself. You cannot do that. Third fill-in under this second point is that we were dead, but now alive in Christ. He says we're raised up and seated with him in verse uh, verse 6. See, God already sees us in this position. We're already raised up and seated with him. Jesus died, rose again, seated at the right hand of God, and God sees us already in that position. Now, we're not there yet, but in God's mind, we are. Many times in Scripture, you'll see um, a present tense written for something that's future, and that's done because the writers believe that whatever promise God had, it was already done. It was fulfilled. It's not if. It's that it's been done. There's an await. There's a waiting for it, but it's already going to be done. 
And this is true with our eternal life. We haven't experienced it yet, but we will. Absolutely. You can count it as a present experience or present thing because it's been accomplished. God does that for us. So we don't have to fear death. Many people do, but we don't have to. Verse 7 says, So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, this can refer to eternity, and I think it does. We will be experiencing that grace and so forth in eternity. But listen, I think it also talks about the present. Now, why do I say that? Because I believe what Paul is saying, I believe what God wants out of our life is for people to see his grace and his mercy and how he snatched us from the darkness, from uh, uh, took us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I think he wants people to see that in our lives so that they indeed can have hope. They indeed can know that they also can have the very same thing that we have. So it's a present reality that people need to see God's mercy and God's grace in our life. They need to hear about the message of Jesus Christ. So we need to be witnesses to those people that God allows us to be uh, to witness to. We need to be looking for that. But he wants us to do that so that they can have eternal life themselves. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Salvation's a gift. It's not a result of any good work. It's not a result of how good I am, what I've done, because then I could boast. I could brag about it. I could say, this is what I've done. This, is, this credits me. I've made the mistake, maybe you have as well, but when we say I found Christ in 1932 or whatever it was, I wasn't even born then, but, uh, but you know, when we say I found Christ, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. He found you. He just revealed himself to you that you could then open your eyes and see that truth and make a decision. So we give the credit and the glory. That's why it's, it's designed this way, is that we can give the credit and the glory and the praise to our one and true God who gives life to those who believe in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. And he's the Lord of our life, saves us from the penalty of sin. And and, let me also say that even though we may not want to sin anymore as believers, let's get down and and real here, okay? We do. We will. We may not want to. We may sin, hopefully we sin less today than we did a week ago or a year ago or ten years ago. Hopefully we sin less than back then when we were uh, saved. But we still sin. That old nature is still hanging around. It still has influence in our life. But it no longer has the power to control us. Amen. That's the reality of it. We still have it, but it used to control us. Now it does not. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we don't have to be controlled by it. So why do we sin? Because we give in to it. We give in to it for whatever reason. There's maybe a ton of reasons, but we give in to that. But uh, fourth fill-in here is that when believers sin, it does not mean we aren't saved or we lose it, but it does remind us of our utter dependency upon Jesus Christ to live in ways that please him. 
That's what sin should be doing for us, is that we recognize, I sinned, I wronged, I sinned against my God who saved me from the pit of hell, and I need to be living for him, and I'm not living for him, and I need to depend upon him, because I can't do this on my own. I can't do it on my own strength. I don't care how big, how strong, how much inner resolve you have as a person. You're not good enough or strong enough to be able to withstand all of that on your own. You can with the Holy Spirit. We get to verse 10. I think a wonderful truth that's here, but also a very humbling truth. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So why are we here? Why do we, and I don't mean just in this building, but that's, that's important to know also, why are we here? But why we are here on this earth? I think we're saved, I know we're saved by God's grace, and it's a gift from him. And you know when God gives a gift, he expects it to, number one, be taken care of, number two, to be a good steward, number three, to use it. Don't just hoard it. Don't just keep it for yourself. Use it. And how do we, matter of fact, gifts are given to us to be used on for, and and for other people. It's not for our own benefit. is isn't so I will feel good and upright and, and tall. It's for the benefit of other people, to help the body of Christ to become stronger and stronger and stronger. Very selfless in what uh, is given to us and, and, how, and why it's been given to us is to be selfless with it. Because we have been created by him. We are his workmanship. But we have been created in Christ. And that means that he's created us in ways to not only to bring glory to him, to, but to obey his commands, to live according to his plans by the power he provides. Because on our own, we cannot do it, right? I hope you understand. I'm going to keep saying that because it's so important. People keep trying. And every time they fail, then they get discouraged and uh, and I want us to stop being discouraged. And rather than to say, uh, my utter dependency, uh, dependency is on Christ. I can't do this. I just failed him. I need to ask for forgiveness, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But I need to depend upon him. I know <clears throat> all human illustrations can break down, okay? I know that. But I had one. I was praying for one. Um, and uh, and I actually prayed about this for uh, several weeks, but I finally I was I was out on a walk, and uh, which I try not to do a whole lot of. But uh, I was out on a walk, and I was praying. I said, God, you know, help me to help me to have some sort of a human illustration. And this just immediately came to me. So I'm not going to cause. I think that it's some sort of divine influence that. Um, you know that uh, you really need to grasp a hold of this, but I hope it helps you anyway in realizing uh, our working with God, and but it's His power that does it. There was um, uh, um, our Paradise Bible Fellowship Church had a block party a few weeks ago, <clears throat> and I was in, in charge of this uh, game called a frog game. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, it's a it's a game where there's a box. Uh, it's probably from here to that railing there long, and at this end. There's a slanted board and one that fits on top of it, and there's this big, ugly, rubbery frog that you set on that little board, and you slam down with a, ma a rubber mallet on this end, and it flips that frog, and it has a box at that end with a round thing that's supposed to be a lily pad, and you try to get it on that lily pad, okay? 
And there were some adults that had some difficult time. They'd either get it not quite far enough or they would really pound it and would just go over it, but they had trouble with it. But this one little girl, I mean, she was little. She stood about that tall. And she'd come up and she was just staring at the game. And you could tell she wanted to try. But, you know, she had to stand on her tiptoes to even get up to the tabletop to even look. That's how small she was, cute as a button. So I said, you want to try this? And she said, yeah. So I had to get a chair so that she could stand up on the chair to even be tall enough to hit down on this board with this mallet. Well, to begin with, I knew she wasn't going to be successful because she had a hard time even holding the mallet. I mean, it was, and it's not that heavy, but it was heavy for her. But she tried anyway. So this frog is sitting here. She wallops that thing, and it does. It goes. <laughs> That's how, and she tried three or four times. And I could see that she wasn't getting anywhere, and, and she might be getting a little bit discouraged. So I just said, um, would you like me to help you? And she immediately nodded her head, yes, I want you to help me. And the neat thing of it is, is that I went and I grabbed the hammer, and she reached up and grabbed the hammer with me, with both hands. And together, down we came. That frog flew out there, went in that thing, and the delight on her face was, was just precious. I, do you get the picture here? It's that this little girl humbly allowed me to help her And it wasn't her strength because she knew she didn't have it. But she allowed me to use my strength to get to accomplish how that uh, game was designed. That's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. God has plans that we cannot accomplish on our own. But if we grab a hold of that mallet that he has and we just work with him and allow his strength to do it, that goal, that plan that God has will be accomplished. And guess what? God gets the praise and the glory. Isn't that a neat thing to think about that? And just like the delight in that girl's face, that will be yours. You realize that God did it. It was his power, his strength, but God did it. And that brings delight to you. I hope you've experienced that in your life. If you haven't, please Please experience it. Please let God have that control. See him work in ways that you can accomplish and things that will bring glory to him because that's what he has designed us to do. Again, that verse was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10.31. All we do is to be done for the glory of God. The last fill-in. If you have trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin... He is to be the Lord of your life. He has given each one of us at least one gift to be used in the church body to help build it up stronger. Boy, I think this puts a a correct perspective on why we do what we do as believers. A correct perspective. This is just a few things that I listed, but we can be kind to each other by his grace and for his glory. That's why and how we can be kind with each other. Again, it's not my strength that's going to do that. We can be his witnesses to other people by his grace and for his glory. We can forgive one another by his grace and for his glory. We can give at least 10% of our money, our income, to the church by his grace and for his glory. If I'm doing it for any other reason, 
I'm missing out on that. But by his grace and for his glory, we can be a godly husband. We can be a godly wife by his grace and for his glory. I think having by his grace and for his glory as our motive will produce stronger individuals. It will produce produce stronger family units. It will produce stronger church families. And all that time that it's building and growing and we're becoming stronger and stronger, God will be uplifted. God will be praised. He will be prominent. He will be the one that we give the thanks to. Jesus paid it all. All to him I Oh, that's an old hymn. All to him I owe. We were dead spiritually, but now very much alive, made alive in Christ, alive to praise him. We should be doing that today, alive to praise him, to worship him, to serve him, to love him, because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, you are awesome. Father, you energize us when we live according to your word, when we're doing things your way under your power and your strength, Lord, what joy, what energy that you do give to us. Lord, we can sing songs with different attitudes. We can read your word with different mindset. We can relate to one another in a different level because we understand it's by your grace and for your glory. And I pray that you'll help us as we continue through this transition. And and I'm beyond that, Father. We want to do things by your grace and for your glory. We want to lead this church. We want to be participants in this church. And we want to be family members in this church, knowing that you are one heavenly Father and that we all uh, owe you all the glory and the praise and the thanksgiving because of what you saved us from. If we've trusted you as our Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins, we are now alive. We're alive, and I praise you. And thank you that that life is your life living in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.